Canadian headlines were dominated uh, by an attack that came that happened in London, Ontario. A 20-year-old man driving a, a black pickup truck deliberately drove his truck into a to a Muslim family who was on the sidewalk. And Detective Superintendent Paul Waite of the London Police, he confirmed that this was no accident. There is evidence that this was a planned, premeditated act motivated by hate, he said. It is believed that these victims were targeted because they were Muslims. Now, shortly afterwards, uh, news of the attack, it it prompted many leaders uh, here in Canada to condemn hatred towards Muslims. And indeed, that is fitting. We should condemn this sort of attack on anyone, no matter who they are. However, when you hear leaders of our country, perhaps when you hear them speak out against this sort of violence and hatred, you get the sense that it's not really going to change anything. It's not really going to change anything in this world. Well, people can condemn these acts all they want, and, and we should. The sad reality is this problem of hatred is not going to go away. The same is true with the related problem of racism. You see, people, they know they know there's a problem, but they can't find lasting solutions. They can preach against it. They can start movements like Black Lives Matters. But in the end, they can't fix the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is that there's a deep-seated hatred for others in the human heart doesn't always take the form of of racism or that attack in London, Ontario, but it's in our very nature. Think of only what we read from Titus chapter 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating others one another. That's a sad picture, description of human sin, the human heart. And the sad reality is that this is not just a problem for people today in our country. This is a problem ever since the fall into sin. And this is a problem Israel struggled with too. And this, that comes, becomes crystal clear from our text this morning also. Here we have thousands of Israelites warring against each other, fighting against each other. It's not, it not only shows the failure of the Israelites, but it also shows the failure of the judges. They simply could not bring lasting change to the human heart, and it calls out for someone greater to fix that problem. So as I preach you God's word this morning, I'll do so under the following theme and points. Israel's deliverer fails to bring peace to God's people. 
And we see this in three things. First of all, a, a war of words. Secondly, a war of swords. And finally, the death of a judge. So our text this morning, it, it finishes off the events surrounding the judge Jephthah. And the Lord had given Jephthah a joyous victory against the Ammonites. Ammon had oppressed Israel for 18 long years. Israel lived in misery. And then at long last, through the sword of Jephthah, God granted relief. However, as we know, as we also saw last week, the joy would be so short-lived. Last week, we heard about Jephthah's tragic vow and how he sacrificed his only daughter. And then, here in our text this morning, we, we see salt being poured into an open wound. You see, that episode we looked at last week involving Jephthah's daughter, that was hard enough. But here we have the tribe of Ephraim making war against their own brothers. And it's almost hard to say which, which one is worse. The death of Jephthah's daughter, it was heartbreaking. Although at least we were comforted, comforted by her faith in the Lord. But here we simply have an awful, bloody mess in Israel. And the animosity, it starts right away in verse 1 of Judges 12. There we read, The men of Ephraim were called to arms, are going to war. And they crossed to Zaphon, they crossed the Jordan River, and they said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. This is, this is shocking, not to mention absurd. You did not call us to go out to fight against the Ammonites, so now we're going to burn down your house with it, you in it? Excuse me, did I, did I hear that right? And this is not the first time the tribe of Ephraim has done something like this. We read another story in the book of Judges in Judges 8. After Gideon defeated the Midianites, Ephraim was angry in a similar way. They, they said to him, What is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. What is wrong in the hearts of these Ephraimites? The problem is pride. They are self-centered. They are focused on their own glory. They are swelled up with pride. One man put it so well when he said, The men of Ephraim, they aren't content at sitting at the right hand or the left hand, but they want to be center stage. The men of Ephraim, they think they are somebodies, and you don't treat somebodies like Jephthah has, not calling them to the battle. See, the men of Ephraim, they will not rejoice in God's victory for Israel unless they gain glory for themselves at the same time. 
See, they're not really concerned with the things of God. They're, they're concerned about themselves. That's the problem. Their attitude, it's, it's miles removed from what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1. There he says, some preach Christ out of envy or rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love. But those who preach out of envy, they preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing they can stir up trouble for me while, while I'm in chains. But Paul says, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of that I rejoice. See, Paul wasn't seeking his own glory. He just cared that Christ, his Savior, was preached, was magnified. Even if some were doing it out of envy, it didn't matter. His focus was on the cause of God and his kingdom. But that is not Ephraim's concern here. They're in this war not for God's kingdom. They're in this war for their own kingdom. And we could... We can add to that, their attitude is also miles away from that of Christ, as described in Philippians 2. There the Spirit says through Paul, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be that the same as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, made himself nothing. Because of their pride, Ephraim is not willing to rejoice with those who rejoice. And they've forgotten that Jephthah's victory, it, it benefited them. Judges 10 says that Ammon, they not only attacked the tribes on the east side of the Jordan, they also crossed over the Jordan and they, they attacked other tribes too, including Ephraim. And Israel was in great misery, but even this is still not enough to quiet their anger. Now, we can easily see their sin and their ungratefulness. But the thing about sin is that it's often easy to see it in others. It's not always easy to see it in yourself, to acknowledge it in your own life. Right? The, the sin of the men of Ephraim, it just jumps off the page at you. Oh, we're going to burn your house down with you in it. Right? It's easy to spot that. But their sin is, can also waken us up to the sin of our own hearts. It's good to ask ourselves, ask yourself, I ask myself, whose kingdom are you most interested in? In God's kingdom? or your own. And here's a test for you. Are you envious at all about the gifts God has graciously given to someone else in the church? Are you able to rejoice when, when God gives good things to your fellow Christians? Things that maybe you don't have. Or do you stew with bitterness and envy? 
Or what happens when you don't get the recognition that you feel that you deserve? What happens in your heart does that wound your pride? Does that make you want to sulk? We have to ask ourselves, whom are we ultimately working for? Are we working for ourselves, our own glory, or are we working for the glory of Christ our Savior? Remember again those words in Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. See, the sin of Ephraim, though it jumps off the page, might not actually be that far from our own hearts. Now, again, as I mentioned, Ephraim has done this sort of thing before in Judges 8. And when the tribe of Ephraim, when they became angry with Gideon for not calling them to the battle against the Midianites, uh, there Gideon, he answered tactfully. Gideon took the high road. He could have returned insult for insult, but he quickly calmed them down. And Jephthah perhaps could have taken the same approach. After all, think of what Proverbs 15 verse 1 says. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Or think of what our Lord Jesus says in Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Or we could think of what the Holy Spirit says to fighting Christians in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your own brothers. Jephthah, however, was in no mood to speak tactfully to Ephraim. He retorted that he had, in fact, called upon Ephraim, but they didn't respond. And in effect, he's saying to them, you're a day late and a dollar short, Ephraim. Nice of you to come to the battle after we've done the dirty work, but you're too late. Now, there's no record in the book of Judges that says Jephthah called Ephraim to war. However, it seems that Jephthah is a man of his word. Think only of his vow in uh, Judges 11. He carried through with his vow, even to his own hurt. Seems to be a man of his word. So it seems likely that he had called Ephraim. But even if Jephthah had not called the tribe of Ephraim to war, so what? Does that give them the right to get angry and start fighting their own brothers? No, it does not. No matter how badly their pride is wounded, Ephraim is clearly in the wrong here. Again, what is the root of the problem? It's selfish pride. Their covetous attitude is making them angry, and they show the truth of James 3, verse 16, where you have envy, where you have selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So again, it's good to search our own hearts, our own lives. Do you face friction and even fighting 
in your relationships with others. It's good to ask, what's at the root of it? Is it what James 3 verse 16 describes? There's envy going on. There's selfish ambition. Is selfish pride controlling your heart and your words? Brings us to our next point. Now, the, the talks between Jephthah and the men of Ephraim, they quickly broke down. Apparently, the last straw was what Ephraim said to the men of Gilead. There they, they apparently said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. It seems that the tribe of Ephraim on, in the main part of Israel, they were saying to the tribes east of the Jordan River, No, you're not really true Israelites. And that seemed to be the, the last straw. In any case, civil war now broke out, and it soon turned into a, a terrible bloodbath. And these proud Ephraimites, they were given an absolute beating. They claimed that the men of Gilead were fugitives of Ephraim, but soon the men of Ephraim were fugitives of Gilead. They ran away from the battle as fast as they could. And the men of Gilead, they were not about to let them go so easily. We read that the Gileadites, they, they captured the fords, the crossings of the Jordan River, and this prevented the Ephraimites from, from going back home to, to their own territory. And it also allowed the Gileadites to kill any Ephraimites who tried to cross. Now, I, ironically, uh, Judges 7 says that the, the Ephraimites, they had already used this strategy against the Midianites. But now they find themselves in the, the receiving end, on the receiving end of this same maneuver. But, and the men of Gilead, they had one more trick up their sleeve. When an Ephraimite wanted to cross the Jordan, the men of Gilead asked, Gilead asked, are you an Ephraim? And unsurprisingly, the man from Ephraim, he would say, no, try to save his life. The men of Gilead, they, they used a test to find out the truth. They would say to the man, okay, really, you're not a man of Ephraim? How about you say the word Shibboleth for us? And if he were from Ephraim, he couldn't do it. He could only get out a sibboleth. He couldn't say the sh sound. You have that sort of thing with more vocal sounds. For example, people from some countries, they have difficulty making the, the TH sound, the th, th sound. Ask them to say the word teeth, and they get it all wrong. And if I were in the same position as these men of Ephraim and the men of Gilead asked me to roll an R for them, all I would be able to do is stutter and spit. These men of, these men of Ephraim, they couldn't say it, and they were found out. And the Gileadites, they used this trick to slaughter even more Ephraimites. 
the death toll was staggering. 42,000 men of Ephraim died. 42,000. That's a huge chunk of the entire tribe. It would take generations for Ephraim to recover from that blow. And so what a sad day in Israel. Last week we had that sad text, Jephthah sacrificing his own daughter. But this is sadness upon sadness. These are brothers fighting and slaughtering each other. These are joint heirs of the precious promises of God, butchering their brothers. See, things are so upside down in this tragedy. How much better things could be? Psalm 133 states, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers live in unity. But here, they put each other to the sword. What if instead the men of Ephraim, they came across the Jordan to the, to the men of Gilead and they said, Jephthah, Gilead, we came here to celebrate with you. Ammon oppressed us for so long. They oppressed you for so long. But our God has given a great victory. Hallelujah. Let us praise our God together. Let us rejoice in him together. Let us share this joy together. But it did not happen. Again, 42,000 Ephraimites fell dead. And it's events like this, beloved, that show us the failings of the old covenant. That problem was not the covenant itself. But as Hebrews 8 says, that the problem was with the people themselves. The problem was their hearts, the, the, their nature, the sin in their hearts, that, that nature that we have too. It showed that God's people would need to be changed if lasting peace would come. They needed to be saved, saved from their sins, saved from themselves. And that's what we need too. And, and the thing is that, that Jephthah simply could not do that. Right? God could use him, and he did use him, to defeat Israel's enemy, enemies that were outside of them, the Ammonites. But Jephthah could not do anything to deal with the enemy that is in here. That is in all of us. That is in, that was in the hearts of the Israelites. Jephthah was powerless to defeat the sinful heart of people. And this story, it, it shouts that out loud and clear. In one sense, he brought a small measure of peace to Israel. Ammon no longer oppressed them. But he could not bring lasting peace in Israel. And so this story, our text this morning, it, it cries out for a better judge. cries out for a better deliverer for God's people cries out for the Son of God to come to make things right. For Ju truly, Jesus Christ is the only one who can save us from, from the enemy that's in here, in all of us. Listen again to Paul's instruction to Titus in Titus 3. 
Remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He's saying that's who we were in ourselves. But he goes on. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. See, God is saying to us, this is what you once were. Passing your days in malice and envy. Prone to hatred, fighting like these men of Ephraim and Gilead. But God has changed you in Christ. He saved you by his mercy, his pure mercy in Jesus Christ. He saved you from the punishment of your sins through the cross. Christ bore all of your sins in his death on that tree. And he has also changed you, regenerated you, the washing of regeneration, given you a new nature, a new heart. As those who have been renewed, we can, can now build each other up and, and not tear each other down. That's what we need. We can now finally overcome evil with good. We can now repay insult with a blessing. We can now turn the other cheek to the one that strikes us. We can put away selfish ambition and vain conceit. We can put to death envy and jealousy. In humility, we can now consider others better than ourselves. The Spirit gives us the power to do that. We can now keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That was what Israel was missing. That regenerating, renewal, renewing work of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. They could not keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is the change Christ Jesus brings. Because of this change, we can look forward to perfect unity, also among ourselves in eternal life. And by God's grace, that unity begins now. And we experience that every Sunday as we can meet together as brothers and sisters in Christ. But one day, one day we'll be perfected in eternal life. That brings us to our last point. Now the war between Ephraim and Gilead finally finished 42,000 men of Ephraim, they fell in the battle. And our text then, it it abruptly ends in verse 7. Simply gives a few last notes about the judge Jephthah. There we read, Jephthah judged Israel six years. And then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Oh, it just doesn't seem to say very much. But it actually speaks quite a bit. The first thing it highlights for us is the increasing ineffectiveness of Israel's judges in the book of Judges. Jephthah judged Israel only for six years. Contrast this with some of Israel's earlier judges in the book of Judges. 
after Othniel defeated the king of Mesopotamia, the land had rest for 40 years before Othniel died. Same is true after Deborah and Barak's defeat of Sisera, the land had rest for 40 years. And with Ehud, it's even longer. After God subdued Moab through Ehud, the land had rest for 80 years. But with Jephthah, there's no mention of the land even having rest. There's no long stretch of peace. And Jephthah judged Israel a mere six years, and then he died. And that's not to say those other judges like Othniel were perfect. By no means, they too died, and they were buried. And in fact, this book keeps stating that about the judges, that they died, and they were buried. They could not help Israel anymore. A new judge would have to take their place and take only the five minor judges which surrounds the story of Jephthah. Hardly anything is, is said about them, but each time something is said. Each time we're told the judge died and then was buried. See, the problem, this is showing us the, another problem was these judges, they too were sinners. Because they were sinners, none of them could overcome our greatest problem. None of them could overcome the problem of sin and death. They couldn't do it for themselves. They couldn't do it for us. So again, we are left waiting the judge who could do it. Again, it's found in our Lord Jesus Christ. He has dealt with our greatest problem on the cross, he did suffer and die to pay for our sins. And he has brought us lasting peace with God through the cross. And yes, he too was died and buried like all of these judges in this book. But unlike them, he rose again from the dead. By that resurrection, he has overcome death for himself and for you who believe in him. And that's what we need. And that's what Jephthah needed too. A savior who could pay for his sin and overcome death for him. You see, without this salvation of Christ, all of Jephthah's work that we've looked at the last number of weeks, all of it would be meaningless. And when you read this story of Jephthah and how it ends, you almost get the sense that his life's work was meaningless, vanity. Nearly seems to be all for nothing. Think of the pain he suffered in his life. He was the son of a prostitute. His own family members drove him far from home. He lived as a nomad for years upon end. And his fortune seemed to change when the men of Gilead made them his, their head he defeated Ammon in battle, but then everything came crashing down again with his vow. And finally, we have this bloody civil war to top it all off. And we might wonder, and, and Jephthah might wonder, have wondered, what's the point of it all? Why did I go through all this struggle and pain? Was it for nothing? Jephthah judged Israel a mere six years, and then he died. And surely he took so many pains and griefs with him into the grave. 
was it all worth it? We might have that feeling sometimes too. This is a broken life and it can, can beat us down. We're constantly faced with our weakness and our sin. Our relationships might suffer. They might bring us much grief. Bad life choices might haunt us. And maybe all of our efforts for building God's kingdom seem to go nowhere. As we look back on life, maybe we're tempted to think, what's the point of it all? Or do we just throw up our, our hands in the air and say, you know, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, like we hear in Ecclesiastes. Beloved, that would be the case if everything depended upon us. But it doesn't. Christ's resurrection changes everything. 1 Corinthians 15 says as much, that famous passage about the resurrection of the dead, there we read, if, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That would be the reality if Christ did not conquer death. And all of Jephthah's work would be in vain also. But 1 Corinthians 15 goes on, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Because of that reality, what does 1 Corinthians 15 say at the end? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That included Jephthah's work too. Jephthah suffered greatly in life. He surely took many sorrows with him into the grave, but he could also take with him into the grave the hope of the resurrection. And Jephthah is listed in Hebrews 11 as someone who lived by faith in God's promises. And he came to acknowledge that here in this life, he had no lasting city. But he too was looking forward to that city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And that's the same faith that we live by as well. Sometimes we might wonder if it's all worth the effort. Remember, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. God has given us a Savior who has given us lasting peace. He's given us a Savior who has overcome death and has given us eternal life. Amen. Let us now respond to the preaching of God's word by singing together Psalm 133.